take our Bibles and journey back to the last chapter of the book of Luke together for our Easter sermon this morning. Pastor Mike read from that text earlier, so we will not take time to reread it. We'll just dive right in. And it is indeed a great blessing to have all of you gathered here this morning. And I know probably all of you are used to celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus every Sunday morning. Um, but I think it's wise, at least once a year, to pay particular attention to really the, the greatest event in human history. Amen. Never happened before. Resurrection morning, and it's never happened to or for anyone else since. Amen. That's what makes our relationship with our Heavenly Father unique, distinct, possible, personal, and powerful. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we sing with such hallelujahs this morning. Amen. Because you know how uniquely and historically and spiritually significant the event of his raising from the dead is and continues to be. We read from the 24th chapter of Luke, and this really uh, is not just the last chapter of Luke, but it's, it's a chapter that really describes for us the first 12 to 15 hours from Christ's resurrection into the evening of this first Lord's Day. Verses 1 to 12, Luke begins with the story of the empty tomb and the message of the angels he has risen. Verses 13 to 35, he continues with Jesus' walk with the two men traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus and where we're also told that he appeared to Peter. The remaining of the chapter that was read earlier describes Jesus' appearance towards the end of this first resurrection day to a whole group of his disciples, men and women, together. And it would include those he had appeared to since that morning. Our Easter morning passage places us about dinner time or just after on the evening of this first resurrection day. It's been about half a day since Jesus has risen from the tomb. He's been right on divine schedule all week long during this time of passion and suffering. Resurrection morning, the, the first day of the week, is no different. Upon his resurrection, Jesus begins appearing and having conversations with various disciples. You remember last Easter morning, we discussed his interaction on resurrection morning with Mary of Magdal to other women and then to Peter and these two, these two men on the Emmaus Road. Jesus has been tending to the hearts of his concerned and fearful followers. All of Jesus' closest disciples are in a living room now somewhere in Jerusalem. They're huddled together enjoying fellowship over dinner. John's the only other gospel writer that 
pens, information on this particular evening time together. In his 20th chapter of his gospel, he describes that they're eating and they're hiding. They're hiding behind a locked door because they fear losing their lives and being killed by religious leaders just as Jesus had lost his life and been killed. The conversation while eating is centered on one question. Had Jesus risen from the dead just as he said he would? The men and women that Jesus had appeared and spoken to share their stories. Each relays how at first they did not recognize Jesus for who he said he was when they first saw him. Then each exclaims their own astonishment when Jesus opened their hearts to their eyes to understand who he was while he was conversing with each of them. We can assume from the passage before us this morning that a number of questions were being discussed around the dinner table that evening. Was this really Jesus? Had they seen a ghost or was this bodily form truly flesh and blood of the Lord? The two men on the Emmaus Road would recount how their hearts burned within them as they recall Jesus speaking of himself from Moses to the prophets. As they walk together, they recount before the others their invitation to this man to join them for a midday meal. And while at the meal, Jesus reveals to them who he is, and then he just, he just disappears. At dinner now, gathered with the rest of the disciples and followers of Christ, could they have been having self-doubt as to what they had heard and saw of Jesus from the morning until evening? We only realized it was him for just a moment, and then he disappeared, the two men from Emmaus would say. Can flesh and blood really do that? I really do believe it was our rabbi Jesus, but I didn't have the opportunity to embrace him or, or even worship him in the moment because he just disappeared, he vanished. After the two Emmaus Road followers explain their hearts, the women share their experience. You have to remember, the ladies would have been in the house first before the two men from Emmaus arrived. Unfortunately, in this culture, women were not to be trusted first in what they had to say. But Mary says, I didn't believe at first when I heard Jesus, and then he spoke my name, and only one voice had ever spoken my name like that. I knew it was Jesus, and I, I worshiped him when I knew who he was. Peter would interject and state his experience quite matter-of-factly. Of course we saw Jesus, didn't we? <laughs> would there be some seated around partaking in dinner wondering why Jesus had appeared to some of their friends and not to him and not to them? What was special about these people? compared to the rest of us who also followed him. Humanly speaking, all of those gathered at dinner had a very long and emotional week. Each had experienced the exhilaration of Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem and the dark grief of his scourging, slaughter, and burial just 72 hours before 
their dinner on this Lord's Day evening. I'm certain there were some who had not slept well throughout the whole weekend. Could they really trust their emotions at this point? Being tired, confused, and even somewhat discouraged, could they even trust what they thought they remembered of the week regardless of what they had thought they had seen or remembered even on that Lord's Day morning for the previous 12 hours or so. So this is the setting before us on this Resurrection Sunday. Jesus compassionately understands their anguish and uncertainty, and we need to investigate what he did to help them. We'll seek to do so by understanding this passage along three lines this morning before we conclude with a hymn together. If you want to write down these three words, you're welcome to. One of them is kind of a big word. Um, But I hope just the statement of these three words will help us understand who Jesus is and what he did to, to settle the hearts of those who are troubled. And by the way, I think every Lord's Day morning since the first Resurrection Sunday, God's people have gathered with troubled hearts. It's inevitable that offenses will come. It's inevitable that trials abound. And I'm certain this morning, just like the first Resurrection Sunday, many are gathered here today with deep concerns, discouragements, sorrows, and various pains that you have in your own heart. The Lord Jesus Christ and what he does in this text to calm the hearts of his followers does the same to you and for you this morning if you find your heart discouraged. So here's three words and we'll explain. Condescension, examination, and commission. You can write those three things down if you'd like. Condescension, examination, and commission. Webster's Unabridged Dictionary defines condescension as the act of condescending, which is a voluntary descent from one's rank or dignity in intercourse with an inferior. It's courtesy towards inferiors, Webster says. When we speak of the condescension of God, we know that God became man in the form of Jesus who is the eternal word of God and the very narration of God himself to us. Paul describes God's condescension in Christ like this in Philippians chapter two and verse six, who being the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the same author, Paul, would describe God coming down from the embattlements of heaven in the form of a man in these words. For you know, he announces to the Corinthian people, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Everything that God is and has been has been put on full display to mankind in the person of Jesus. Jesus was infinitely rich with what he enjoyed with the Father, and yet he condescended. He became poor. Folks, the, the poorest of the poor. So that we might know the riches of eternal life, he knew with the Father from all of eternity. We sing a hymn. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth of every mine. Oh, my friends, he's certainly richer than just that. His divine infinite riches are by his own very nature and existence unimaginable and limitless, not only to his person, but also to his character. God condescended to man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and he put on display, he manifested for all of us to do some divine window shopping, if you will. He put on display before mankind the very nature and the very character of God. And that has a lot to do with what Jesus is about to say to these people who are troubled gathered in this living room enjoying a post-dinner discussion. So in the passage before us, this Resurrection Sunday, we see an intimate expression of the condescension of God in Christ Jesus. Resurrection power has had its way just a few short hours ago, and Jesus had visited some to demonstration of that power. And the power is glorious in part because it had both spiritual and practical purpose. God, who had become man in Christ, had lived and died and was now resurrected to bring others to, an eternal life, to eternal life in this world, and that eternal life was more abundant than any life the world could ever offer. This condescended life of God in Christ would be realized in the most intimate way to our troubled, gathered group of friends. Luke writes, we need to remember, for those of you that know your Bibles well, presenting Jesus as the Son of Man. It's good for us to remember this. The divine now condescended humanity of Christ, the very narration of God to us would minister to the finite needs of his people in special and spectacular ways while their hearts were troubled because of Jesus' death. So Luke begins... When he writes, then while they were saying these things, he himself stood among them and said to them, peace with you. So in the middle of this passionate dinner or post-dinner discussion, Jesus just appears in their midst. Often in these settings in the first century, people would eat dinner on a floor in a circular formation on cushions. So just imagine, maybe some of the ladies are up, 
cleaning the table, as it were, after dinner. And they're bustling about the home, trying to stay as quiet as possible because they don't want anyone to hear them break the door down and get killed. The men, both who have seen Christ and who haven't, are seated still on the cushions, passionately discussing, passionately wondering with their troubled hearts. And, and one, of the, one of the spaces on the cushions that was occupied by one of the women now cleaning up for dinner was empty, is now filled. Jesus appeared on the cushion. How could he do that? He appears in a moment in a glorified body in the very same way that he had vanished in earlier verses in Luke 24 from the two men from Emmaus. This is, this is a normal human form. We're used to understanding the Lord Jesus Christ in, in maybe a Revelation 1 context where he's that brilliantly arraigned, brilliantly shining presence of the glory of God that John sees when he has his vision on the island of Patmos. We're used to thinking of the transfiguration and the, and the glory of God that effervesced from Jesus Christ in bodily form. And yet this is the same Jesus yet in simple human plain, recognizable form. There's something about his glorified body that's unique. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that someday we're going to have a body just like his. Like how cool is that going to be? Right? You can come and go. You can vanish and appear with no needs of Delta Airlines. Right. No needs of SpaceX. The whole universe is available to you in that glorified body. To roam and to observe and to have dominion over. Well, that's our joy to come and this is the Lord Jesus' joy in this moment. And it brings him great joy to appear to this small band of people Remember, this is his condescension. This is almighty God taking a seat at the dinner table of loyal, simple, grieved followers. And so what does he say? Peace with you. John says the same thing. Peace be with you. The resurrected son of man pays this personal visit and he just says, peace be with you, my friends. This is no normal evening gathering. It's not a, it's not a normal thing to hear this from Jesus if you're walking in the marketplace and happen upon him. This is not a normal greeting. Jesus is, you see, the very peace of God. He is saying, peace is with you, referring to himself. 
He was the crucified, resurrected, propitiatory offering of God for the sin of mankind, seated with them. He is Christ's sacrifice. He was Christ's, it was Christ's sacrifice that would offer men the opportunity to be made at peace with God and to, to know the very peace of God. The Bible tells us it's the wrath of God that abides over the children of sin. And who's sinful? All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us are guilty. And the very peace of God is now seated with them, reminding them of the peace that he's brought to their hearts at their conversion, though they're still troubled, offering the same peace to you and to me. On the cross, he had satisfied that wrath of God that abides on all of us who are sinners. He caused us, when we turn from our sin and place our faith in him, to be at peace with God. And until you do that, the Bible says you are an enemy of God because that sin divides us from God. Paul explained it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might be reconciled. And might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. The whole message of the gospel has now come to full content right before Jesus' weary followers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for the sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve and after that, he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom remain till now. The condescension of God in Christ must take place for the forgiveness of sins. And now for the very peace of the redeemed who break bread together with anxious hearts. Before us this resurrection morning is the divine person of spiritual peace who offers immediate rest to the soul to all those who will receive his offer, the offer of his person. Matthew said, come unto me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest to your souls. Only the God of peace in Christ could offer soul rest, and only that soul rest can be offered by him because he's the resurrected one. Only the resurrected one of God can offer peace to your heart. No other thing, no other person, husband, wife, son, daughter, no other asset that you have, no diploma, no job, no bank account, no securities, no one or no thing can offer peace to your heart but the resurrected one, the condescended from heaven in the form of God, Jesus Christ, who came to be your peace. 
So stop searching. Stop looking around. Stop hunting for peace. He's welcome here. Where two or three are gathered together, he's, he's there. He's taken his seat this morning. Would you recognize him? Would you receive his offer? So he reminds them of his peace and it's offered to them because of condescension and Jesus asks for a little bit more examination now. We found that in verses 38 to 43 that was read earlier. These faithful, still amazed followers of Jesus would experience more mercy in the presence of Jesus. The tensions in the living room where Jesus is now with them begin to fade just a bit, having heard Jesus proclaim peace. But Jesus still knows their hearts and says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? He knows that they've been through a lot in the last 72 hours. Can you just remember this with me? All of the messianic dreams and aspirations that even those seated in the living room who had recognized Jesus Christ as God and turned their hearts over to him in faith and repentance, you have to understand, even though they did that, and they own Christ as Lord before his death, they still had a desire for him to be king. And any king that had ever lived before that even had global reign that died had not risen from the dead. So their rabbi, with hopes of being King Jesus, he's dead. And what? Dead's dead. Like, no one's going to break forth from the tomb and cry victory over death. So this, this Jesus, who they claimed as Lord and wanted to be king, is gone. And even though he steps into their presence and proclaims the reality of who he is and his condescension, their peace, they're still discouraged. They're still trying to figure it out. I think we could all cut them some slack because they certainly didn't have the rest of the Bible as we've had it. Right? Let's investigate how the Lord's patience and compassion continues to minister to their hearts. So Jesus clarifies his purpose in all of the Passion Week by telling them to examine a few things. He says, see my feet, remember reading that this morning see my hands take a look hands and feet and then he says that it is I myself now it gets real he's using their God given senses to discern his own humanity see and then he says touch Lay your hands on my hands. Put your feet, literally what he's saying, on my feet. John recounts the same thing. See my hands and feet. 
we're left to assume Jesus is asking them to see the scars of his crucifixion at this point, to verify that it's him. But neither John nor Luke in their account mentions what's known in Christian history as the stigmata, the the scars. From the nails. It really wasn't until eight days later, after John's recording of this incident, where Jesus reappears to the same group, only Thomas is there. Remember Doubting Thomas? Who said, unless I see the holes in his hands and I see the holes in his feet, unless I can put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And So Jesus reappears after this group, not drawing attention to those specific scars or holes. He reappears just for Thomas. And he says, Thomas, reach forth your hand and touch the scars. Put your hand into my side. And he does, and Thomas proclaims what? My Lord and my God. By the way, that's the only time that Thomas incident, we're told in the Bible that Jesus actually had scars from nails in his hands and feet. Nonetheless, Jesus proclaims, touch me, it is I myself. This is so powerful. My friends, do you know what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying, see and touch my hands and feet I am. I am. They knew what that meant. They had heard him proclaim his I am's. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. They knew that he was eternally those things those realities it's an expression of his nature and yet he's seated with them as God the great I am is not dead the logos of God the divine nature of Jesus never died on that cross Jesus is saying my body died but I'm God I have the keys to death and hell and I've broken the chains of both and I am physically alive. He continues to challenge their senses by reminding them that since you put your feet on my feet and your hands on my hands, I can't be a ghost because ghosts don't have flesh and bones. Jesus says. I mean, how tender. I mean, did he really have to go to this extent? Think about how graciously Jesus seeks to minister to you in an hour of grief. The God of all creation. So again, let's not be too hard on these followers of Jesus. Remember, they've had literally a one of a kind, never to have happened again historic day. Someone has risen themselves from the dead, 
This is quite an extreme, spectacular, and miraculous turn of events. We would call this moment a hard-to-process moment. A few years back, there was an archaeologist called the Naked Archaeologist. I don't think he dug without clothes, but this is his, his, his point was to reveal the plain truth of, of archaeology. And he would tell of a story of finding Jesus' family tomb. And in that tomb were all the bones of his father and mother, of Jesus himself, and of all of his siblings. And like Geraldo Rivera's false discovery of Capone's entombed riches years ago, this archaeologist was proven to be a fraud. He was actually asked, asked by uh, National Geographic to write an article about what he had discovered, and it was put in print. And then only after he showed no proof of the bones of Jesus or his family was he debunked and canceled. None of what he's ever written was rewritten. It's like he vanished in human history because he was a fraud. He was a fraud. Jesus says, I'm no ghost. My resurrected bones are right here. The infrastructure of my physical body are my bones holding me up and holding me out, touch, and see. And then he highlights another human sense, taste. He says, do you have anything to eat? He already knew the answer to that question. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Jesus takes the remnants from their meals, possibly the leftovers. It's probably around 7 to 9 p.m. at this point. Who doesn't like a warmed up, tender seasoned piece of broiled fish? They've seen him, they've touched him, and now they taste with him. I'm confident there's still someone waiting for that piece of fish to be put in his mouth to drop through the bottom of his jaw. They might be sheepishly looking, but this is where they're at. They still almost believe that it's him in flesh and bones. But it doesn't. He chews, he swallows, he smiles, gives his compliments to the chef, and continues to eat. I find it interesting that John, the only other gospel writer to give this account, says from chapter 1, what was from the beginning, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning Jesus Christ, the word of life. And this life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This is his physical manifestation. 
his condescension. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy might be made complete. That's when you truly know joy, my friend, is when you know the condescended love of God in Jesus Christ who longs to be the peace for your soul as our resurrected Lord. So having the reality of Jesus' resurrection objectified more clearly by the challenge of their senses, Jesus having sensed their doubts and troubles of their hearts, having had the opportunity now to announce his peace and to have them examine him physically a more comprehensive level he senses their hearts are settling and so he has he has something to command them to do Luke also wrote the book of Acts and you can find these words more clearly explained in Acts chapter 1. But understanding his condescension and understanding somewhat of an examination of Jesus here physically, there's a commission that Jesus gives. This is the very certain progression that we see among this whole final day, or the finality of this resurrection day. These are the words which I spoke to you, Jesus says, while I was still with you. The phrase, while I was still with you, signifies that times have changed now. With his resurrection complete, there's a new dispensation of opportunity. There's a new time period. I want you to take all that you know and all that you believe of me and how that's changed you, and I I want you to take this message forward. These are my words which I spoke to you. All things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds, Luke says, to understand the scriptures. The whole of the Bible and what the Lord Jesus had spoken to them of himself and his resurrection in the scriptures had come true. If the resurrection wasn't true, then Moses is a liar. The prophets are a liar. The psalmists are liars. But it is true, so they're not. They're to be believed. It had been a heavenly plan all along from eternity past. The Lord Jesus opened their minds to comprehend this. And Jesus says, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. You getting it, guys? You getting it, guys? We've spent a little bit of time together. I can see in your eyes. I can see it in your dispositions, in your postures. You're leaning forward. You get this now. Now you're really understanding why all this has happened. Right, guys? Hang on. Hang on. Okay. He's got them on the edge of their cushions with bated breath. I did all this so you could do something with it. I've given you a commission. And Luke records Jesus' words that repentance 
and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to the nations beginning right in their own hometown of Jerusalem. That's the whole reason. That's the whole reason. You see, friends, the scope of the sufficiency of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is global. The message our resurrected Lord proclaims must be taken to the nations, and it's a message that's it's a one-of-a-kind message. And it's the only spiritual message that crosses cultural boundaries. Please hang on to this as we close. This message is for all people of the world to hear, not just for specific people groups. In Paul's detailed and glorious explanation of the gospel and resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, he preaches, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all men can be made alive. No religion since Christ and none after him were ever global in their scope. No religion in history has ever had a commission like this. None. You can't read of them still. Man-made religion is designed for people to come to examine and marvel it. But Jesus says, go to the nations. Go tell the world that is lost and dying in their sin that I'm alive, I'm resurrected. Tell them that he's conquered the enemies of sin and death in himself and that they can be made alive for eternity in him. With this gospel advance, it would be proven that the resurrection was necessary for even Christianity to exist. The day of the resurrection of our Savior is the greatest day in human history. This is why. Without it, your faith is vain. Your hope is dashed. If Christ is not risen, then the whole scriptures that told of him, of his coming life, his suffering, and his resurrection are not true. The promise of the hope of your resurrection, it's gone. It's not there. If Jesus is not risen... Our Jesus, my friends, not the false Jesus of cult or the insufficient Jesus of religion, but the Jesus of Moses, of Psalm 22, of Isaiah 53. He has given us life based on his resurrection, and this exclusive message must be taken to the nations because our resurrected Jesus told us we must. And so we are. Amen. And that must be the why of our existence as a people. And he promises his presence with us while we do so, even unto the end of the age. Verse 49. He knows he's going to be ascended here shortly. And he says, and behold, I'm sending you forth the promise of my father upon you. 
but you are to stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus said in John's gospel that after he ascends to the Father, he will send another one just like him. The Holy Spirit would come and indwell those who place their faith in our resurrected Christ alone for their forgiveness of sins. It is the Holy Spirit that indwells us this morning if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you live in resurrection power because of that and with his presence, the very divine presence as the son, we go to the nations and proclaim Jesus is alive. Your religious leader's dead. He hasn't burst forth from his tomb yet. Our God, Jesus has. And he's coming again. He's worth considering for your eternal life. He's worth you bowing your knee to him as Lord and creator and savior. And in him and only in him can you be taken from spiritual death to life because in his resurrection, he conquered the effects of sin, which is death and he lives forevermore. Don't Complicate it, my friends. It matters not to the Lord what your professor in college taught you. It matters very little to the Lord what even your parents may have taught you if it was not correct about the person of Jesus. It matters not anymore who's hurt you or who you've hurt. Let's clear all of the philosophies, ideologies, hurts and pains and anguishes of this world that are unavoidable because we live in a world that's just affected by sin. Let's clear them all the way and see with clear eyes and begging hearts, Jesus, it's him alone. You need to hear, I was on a plane last night uh, coming back from North Carolina. It was a late flight. Mercy, it was late. I don't know. I have these like thoughts when I get on planes, right? I was like, okay, like I never want to watch a movie on a plane that's cr- a plane crash, right? Or a documentary before I get on a flight, you know? But I watched this documentary on the Malaysian flight two weeks ago. So, and, and to gather myself, we're getting ready to take off from Raleigh. It's really stormy, 100% chance of rain, 24 hours. It was, it was interesting. So I'm calming myself, praying. So uh, I opened up my notes for this morning's sermon just to kind of review them and uh, got refocused. And I thought, you know what? What happens if this thing does go down tonight? I was seated next to the sweetest little boy, six-year-old boy, Tobias, right? We had a wonderful conversation, right? And to my left were his two siblings, loud, rambunctious, loud (laughs) right and I had these two college girls seated behind me kind of watching how I was going to handle these kids and whose mom was not present on the plane with them nor father flying alone and uh, I could sense to the left of me people watching what I was going to do and I thought you know what would I say what would I say to calm the hearts of these little ones if it got a little bumpy. Because the kid pointed up at the 
Oh, he had, he had, he had, the, he had the emergency brochure in his hands, right? <laughs> Tobias, and he's saying, he's saying, mister, he goes, what's your name? I said, my name's Tim. He goes, Mr. Tim, he goes, what's this, what's this thing that they're putting over their face? I said, well, that'll, that'll let you breathe easier. Well, why would I need to breathe easier, he says. Well, I don't think you're going to have to use it. But if you do, it comes right there from that little spot. And it'll pop down right, and I'm going to help you put it on if you need it. He goes, okay. Right? He goes, are those boats, are those yellow things like boats? Like, what happens if, why would we need a boat on a plane? <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, right? So I'm having a ball just explaining them. Well, it is, a, it, is a, it is a pretty color. It's a nice boat. And I suppose if we, if we end up landing safely on water, that we'll use the boat to get to land. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then he just turned over, and the turkey went to sleep. He slept the whole flight. He started on my shoulder, and then he left over on the wall, and it was peace be still. But I got to thinking, wow, what happens if the thing did pop out of the roof? And what, what happened? I've got one message to tell this whole plane, and I've got to do it peacefully. And then I'm starting to think, for this is just me, I'm starting to think, this is not a popular culture to be exclusive about Jesus. Like, like we're literally living in a world where every man did that which is right in their own eyes. Like every man is right and they have their own theology. It's a self-theology and no one's, you can stand up and say what you're gonna say and they could be moments from breathing their last and literally exploding and they could scream at you. You fool, sit down. And you say, no. Trust me, uh, you need to consider Jesus. I love you and you don't know who I am. You need to consider Jesus. Amen. Not just my Jesus, the Jesus who came, who had the whole world in view when he died. Are you ready? Five, four, three. Are you ready? Choose him. Doesn't matter anybody else. You and him are going to stand alone together. Are you going to look at him as savior or as judge? We're there, folks. We're there in our culture. We must wake up and see Jesus and his compassion, the condescension of God and his love for each and every one of us. Own him if you do not have him. Turn to him. If everybody leaves you, spouse, child, friend, foe, and you're all alone, he's still enough for you. Amen. He's still enough for you. Consider him. He's alive. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, thank you in your infinite wisdom, making our way to eternal life so simple to understand by narrowing it down to one way, one truth, and one life, Jesus Christ. 
What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and all of its riches and loses his own soul? We worship you this morning, Lord, for providing for us propitiation for our sins. We're so thankful, Lord, in the person of our resurrected Jesus. There's power over sin and its consequence, death. And if we would but just turn to him, we would live forevermore and to know his peace. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I, there's, is there someone here this morning you just need to turn your life to Jesus. Are you ready? The privacy of your own heart, say, dear Jesus, you died for me. No problem seeing I'm a sinner. I've tried to fix myself and I'm unfixable. And just pray in your own heart in this moment, Lord Jesus, I'm broken and I'm undone. I'm fearful, I'm scared, I'm lonely, I'm hurt, I'm torn. I need you to be my peace. Lord Jesus, I turn from me. Lord Jesus, I turn from myself. Lord Jesus, I turn to you. Lord Jesus, save me, help me. Make me whole. Take my burden. I don't want to carry it anymore. Save me, Lord. Be my Savior. Be my peace. Don't wait. Don't wait till tomorrow. Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved with their heads bowed and eyes closed if you cried out to the Lord in that way this morning I'm not going to call your name or have you stand would you just slip up your hand and say I prayed I asked Jesus to help me to save me this morning I'd like to just pray for you throughout this day and this week anyone at all this is not intellectually knowing Jesus this is volitionally knowing him this is surrendering yourself to his lordship Pastor, I trusted Jesus this morning. Did you just lift up your hand? Some of you would say, Pastor Tim, I, this is the closest I've ever been. But I still wonder. I still have questions. And I want to say, praise God for that. Please ask. If you say, I'm almost persuaded and I just need prayer because I have more questions and I need help, would you just slip up your hand? I'd love to pray for you, not by name, but I'd just like to pray for you throughout the week. Anyone at all? This world is loud, my friends. It's convincing. It assures you everything and then promises you nothing. 
Only Jesus is given by God to be your all in all. Would you trust him? Father in heaven, we thank you again for this simple and glorious passage this morning. We thank you for just the strength you've given us to investigate it and to preach it, to understand it, and be encouraged by it. In Jesus' name we pray.